And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jamie Calvin is one of the most important journalists you've probably never heard of. Uh, He's worked in the city of Chicago all his life on social justice issues. And he's the reporter who fleshed out the videotape of the shooting of Laquan McDonald in Chicago that has created such an uproar and an impetus for change. I sat down with Jamie the other day to talk not just about the McDonald case, but about his life uh, and where we go on this issue of police community relations and excessive force. Jamie Calvin, you are a uh, a uh, lifelong Chicagoan, a Hyde Park lifer. I am a native. Yeah, yeah, and your your dad was kind of a legend here uh, around the University of Chicago as a kind of tribune of the First Amendment. And um, talk a little bit about him and the influence he had on you. Yeah, so my father, Harry Calvin Jr., was a professor at the law school, uh, constitutional scholar, and his great passion was the First Amendment. So he um, wrote constantly about it for legal journals, um, uh, general magazines. And towards the end of his life, um, and he died at 60, so he died young, he wanted to bring together his thoughts about the First Amendment that have been scattered in publications of various sorts in a single, continuous uh, work. And he began about five years before he, he finally died. When he died, he left a 1,400-page uh, first draft of this sort of masterwork. What were you doing at the time? I was just beginning a career as a, as a journalist, uh, but in the very early stages of it out in California, and actually had spent a couple of years in South Asia and India, and sort of assumed I was going to go back and, and write from there. Um, he died in 74. I came home the day he died from San Francisco and, um, you know, in the midst of grief and disorientation, went up to, we lived in one of the big, you know, uh, we're the typical South Side University of Chicago family overhoused in a mansion in Kenwood, went up to the third floor where his office was, which had been a ballroom in an earlier era for this house. And because he had so much space, he had this sort of horizontal filing system where piles of, you know, from I know that kind of filing system. <laughs> you know that from different... Yes, I don't know, even have a ballroom and I have a filing system yeah. like that. So it was like this, you know, this ecosystem, this geography of his his career. And um, I that was the beginning of a process that ended up taking more than a decade of immersing myself in the... The U.S. Supreme Court's work on the First Amendment, my father's work on the First Amendment, and um, completing the book and preparing it for publication. Then you, so you went from this elevated sort of exercise to to really getting into the sort of fabric of the community, and yeah. you you went from sort of the 
life of the mind to the life of the community here. Yeah, so part of, you know, I grew up on the South Side. I now live in Kenwood um, within three blocks of the different places I lived in growing up. I walk past them every day when I walk the dog. So I'm really placed, you know. Mm-hmm. But the I had traveled a great deal, you know, before I came back on the occasion of my father's death. And um, this, as you characterize it, this work on the book was so immersive and, you know, 100-hour weeks just inside this. And um, after the years of the work, I sort of looked up and found that I now lived in Chicago again, was really here, was married, had two, two small children at the time. So all these different things that bind you into the community. And, you know, I've always been very attached to the South Side, moved widely through the South Side. But it became this sort of compelling thing for me to um, understand the place where I lived and yeah. to really actively explore. You also, you, you had an incident that intruded on your life that helped define yeah. some of that as well. Talk about that. So my father's book, the title of which is A Worthy Tradition, Freedom of Speech in America, was published in 1988. And um, later that year, September, uh, my wife, Patricia Evans, who's a documentary photographer, um, and uh, uh, a great athlete. I mean, she would actually ultimately win the Chicago Marathon in her age group several times, was out training, running on the lakefront, three in the afternoon. So what a coincidence, because I myself have been aspiring to that yes right as we all have well, you know. so yeah so in any case she she was out training for the marathon i guess i'd have to start running to do yeah that that's the first step yeah, yeah. yeah. step by step you, yeah. you can't push it the um she was out running on the lakefront and um you know part of what's so haunting about it beautiful september day and within no great distance of lakeshore drive with lots of traffic and she was overtaken from behind, uh, s- severely beaten, really, you know, she could have been killed in the incident, and sexually assaulted. Um, we were, you know, our kids were four and eight at the time, and I, I used the image some years later, and it still feels apt to me, and I think this happens to people all the time, um, with the entrance of violence into their lives, we were sort of shipwrecked in the midst of everyday life. I mean, that was for years. Same address, you know, um, but uh, everything different. And, you know, above all, for, above all for Patsy, but also radiating out into the family and for the kids trying to make sense of this for a wider community. Um, a couple of years after, after the assault, and edi- actually the editor for my dad's book at Harper, what was then Harper and Rowe, suggested the possibility, who'd kind of lived through those years with us as a friend, um, the possibility that I might write a book about the aftermath of violence. And um, and I really was skeptical about the idea when it was proposed. I, Patsy... Because you thought it'd be too... You know... Too intrusive, too mm, revelatory mm, of things that you'd didn't want to talk about it? No, it was less that than, um, I mean, Patsy's impulse was, yes, let's let's do it. And I think her feeling was, if something constructive could come out of this infinitely regrettable, you know, traumatic event, um, all the better. My 
question was, could I possibly write a good book about this? Yeah. What 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 good did she think would come of it? What did she want to do? You know, did she I, want to give? Did she want to give uh, support, strength to others who've gone through that, or did she want to focus on the things that? provoke those kinds of what did she want to achieve it's a, it's a good it's a good question I you know I, I hesitate to speak to her uh, for, for her after all these years I think it was you know people respond to um, violence and trauma differently and I think some people have an impulse and we you know see it often to kind of pull their boundaries in around them and find a way of being safe and that can you know, lead to a constriction of people's human sympathies and 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 a capacity to extend themselves to others. Often, I've seen this. I was with a group of um, yesterday with a group of mothers who've lost children to gun violence in Chicago. Extraordinary group of women. You know, kind of organizing around this. Sometimes people extend their sympathies, their sense of, of others through these kinds of experiences. That was, you know, that was the way Patsy responded. So I think it was the idea that if there were things in our story that could be useful to others um, when they encountered this and other sorts of loss and, and trauma in their lives. And I think, I think one of the things, I'm sort of coming back to me now as we talk about it, you know, I think there was a hope that I could, on her part, that I could write a book that we hadn't been able to find, you know, in the aftermath of the assault on her. Um, and what that book ended up being was an extended narrative. Uh, the title of it is Working with Available Light. Um, and an extended narrative of the life of the family in the five years following the assault. Mm -hmm. And much was made of the fact that it was a man, a male perspective on violence against women. And, you know, there were people who thought that was wonderful, people who thought that was presumptively suspect. Um, I didn't really think of, I mean, I obviously am a man and, and speak and perceive the world that way. But the the compelling thing for me as as a writer was to try to tell the story of one act, a single act of violence and moral stupidity as it sort of radiated through time and over relation and through relationships you know and and I'd read a lot of the literature of torture and rape you know as I was trying to bring the project into focus and what often happens, uh, I think more often than not, is the narrative, it's as if there are two people in the world, you know, the, mm -hmm. the perpetrator and the victim, and the rest, of, the rest of the world is kind of eclipsed. And so this was an effort to, to keep Patsy's experience at the center of the narrative, but bring, bring in, by degrees, the, the rest of the world. The perpetrator was never found, right? Never found, yeah, yeah. never found. But, it, uh, but he... This drove you not just to explore this experience, but deeper into the community. I, this young, this was a young African American man who I don't know how young, but African American, mm -hmm. and um, disappeared into over the bridge at at Forty Third Street over the drive, um, you know, in the vicinity of Ida B. Wells. And then. But this sent you sort of metaphorically over the bridge as well to a degree I, you know it's it's a it, and not and not in and not in chase right right so part of what was interesting so i toured with this book it got a lot of attention and um 
you know, virtually every interview, every media appearance, um, as if there was only one story that men particularly knew about violence against women, I was asked if I was obsessed with finding this guy and exacting revenge. You know, as if that John Wayne, the searchers or something, was the only story. That, and I'd written this extended, complicated narrative. And, and my response then was always, you know, I, I hope he's caught. I don't want him to, you know, I, I want to see um, justice done in this case, but also take him out of circulation in terms of, mm-hmm. of um, attacking others. But I didn't feel that compulsion. And it felt to me kind of, um, I'm not sure what word to use, but um, almost like a sort of male infantile thing because it's 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 a fantasy you know unless you're right there at the moment you're you're not gonna um be able to intervene and it also if it's not a fantasy it's actually a lynching (laughs) yeah i mean it's that that sort of impulse for rough rough justice and what was much more compelling for me and and sort of drove me but i have to say this was an expression of where where patsy was coming from um, her greatest grief was that something had been done to her body that robbed the world. Uh, you know, she it was the theft of her world. She mm-hmm. had traveled mm-hmm. widely. We'd been in race riots and mm-hmm. wars together as journalists. And um, the idea that she was frightened to go from the car to the front door was was so, I mean, that was the loss. And so it was a question of how to remap and recover the world. The question for me that became pretty powerful, although I don't want to suggest that I was clear-sighted at this time, it's kind of groping, and then you find yourself somewhere and you can look back and see what the path was. The question that drove me was, uh, or the need, was to find um, men who who fit the description, who weren't cruel. Poor black living in certain parts of the South Side, but, you know, were, were not cruel, were not monsters. That There's something that happens after... So somebody with, somebody with green hair assaults you. And again, this is all secondary for me. I don't want to... You know, there's certainly ways in which the rest of us in the family were victims, but there's a primary victim... And Patsy was extraordinarily eloquent about this, and it drives the the narrative in the book. You're you're assaulted by somebody with green hair. It's not a question of your attitudes and your tolerance that you recoil, that just your nerve endings fire when you see somebody with green hair. And so how do you avoid having that dynamic that lives in your cells um, shape your life? Ultimately, you've become now a, a major figure here in Chicago, if albeit a reluctant uh, one, uh, because you've exposed uh, cases of uh, police misconduct. You've shown a bright light into the corner, and particularly in the case of Laquan McDonald. But we were talking about how you got into that work as a journalist, and we were ta- and your wife's experience was obviously formative. Well, how, did, yeah. how did you get from A to B? Yeah, so, I mean, the, and I, w- I don't want to suggest that it was as direct as A to B in, or, you know, cause and effect. Um, you know, I was already sort of engaged in trying to get a better sense of the South Side and explore this place that was my place. But I grew up in Kenwood in Hyde Park, um, 
and for those who you know aren't familiar with this part of the South Side, a um, uh, integrated uh, middle class community. It's an island, man. But it's, it's an, an island. island it's on the in South a balkanized. Side. It is. You know, uh, what did right. uh, Mike Nichols say? It, it was uh, it's black and white, standing shoulder to shoulder against the poor. against the poor. So yes. you know, within within walking distance of this enclave of racial tolerance. Um, at every point in my life, although the broader South Side has undergone changes, are some of the most distressed, abandoned um, uh, communities of overwhelmingly African American um, anywhere in the country. And so it just, I, there was a fascination for me in that, that geography. And I think the way in which the way in which uh, Patsy's... The fact that there are two worlds that two live w- side the, by side and were so detached from but each in other. A, but in an intimate... It is la- striking. In, in an intimate landscape. You yeah. know, these are not huge distances. Right. So to have... Um, uh, I mean, the, where I ultimately... Well, 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 you know, well, well, the thing that underscores that is 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 that uh, the fact that President Obama's house in Kenwood is a, a mile from where that young woman, Adia Pendleton, yeah. was killed uh, right. a, a year or two ago, uh, one of the victims of gang violence in right. Chicago. And uh, it just gives you a sense of how these two worlds live side by side. It's side by side, and and also the dynamic by which, I mean, you know, I there are all sorts of things about life in Hyde Park Kenwood that I love, I'm shaped by, you know, I said initially I'm a native, but I think there's also something that I found myself pushing back against, and I to this day I do. I mean, you know, I live among people and struggle not to be one of them who uh, get three newspapers, you know, read the New York Times every day, have NPR on all day, read the right books, and are completely. You must be living among older people if they're getting newspapers, but well, yeah, some some of them, yeah, some of them are in fact getting the the thing on the doorstep. Um, in any case, they're reading the content, but you know, you can occupy that space on one hand and be utterly oblivious in denial, morally stupid about the conditions of life around you in a sphere where you can have an impact. You know, this is, it's 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 an extraordinary phenomenon. You watch the news and it's as if you're watching news from another place. And it could be walking distance. Right. It could be, so I have been sort of contesting that way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. for a long time and trying to kind of push past those boundaries and see what was on the other side very much you know it can look kind of either quixotic or heroic or reckless depending on your perspective um in practice as with most things it was a series of small steps and you know a sense of direction maybe and it, for me it led by way of a number of initiatives around the south side you know, kind of barn raising type uh, mm-hmm. operations, cleaning up vacant lots, boarding up vacant buildings, uh, you know, unsecured buildings, and ultimately led me to a world that has since disappeared, which is this huge concentration of public housing on South State Street, uh, the so-called South State Street Corridor, mm-hmm. Robert Taylor Homes, Stateway right. Gardens. We should say that these were big public housing projects that were built uh, in the... Uh, in the middle of the cent- of the 21st century, uh, the 20th century, uh, in the 50s, uh, right. and uh, um, that large numbers of African Americans 
lived in these uh, in these developments, and they were they were they were pitched at, at the beginning as a as a step forward in in uh, public housing. They became uh, something else. They became something else, and it's a really complicated story, and we're still contending over over mm-hmm. that story. I so the the um, the area in which I most intensely worked was um, the heart of the black South Side, both in the old black belt, you know, under segregation, and then and then the public housing era, and it was a, a sort of corridor, so called, that extended from um, again within walking distance of where we are now. Mm-hmm. To um, to 35th Street and beyond, so a couple of miles of public housing high rises, the biggest concentration of public housing in the country, the biggest concentration of poverty, and it functioned as a kind of a. It was like a South African township. I mean, it was a city within the city. How were you received there? Not, so, yeah, would, did I mean? Did they were you like you know Margaret Mead among? Uh, no, well, it's I mean, how, yeah. So would, it's it's hard. There are probably other people who could describe it better. Um, you know, I obviously entered that world by degrees, but ultimately was a daily presence there for years. Again, for you know, well over a decade. Um, I, you know, by the time I got involved in public housing, I had created a small initiative we called the Neighborhood Conservation Corps that was focused on um, creating alternatives for young men in the criminal economy and the gangs and just coming out of prison, you know, mostly doing construction-related mm-hmm. work, physical work. And um, so, you know, I had something to offer in terms of mm-hmm. of job possibilities and offered to, to people then and now who were mostly excluded from from everything. So fairly quickly, I had a critical mass of former gang members working with me who had a lot of um, street credibility. And I think, you know, that sort of validated my presence. How did this lead to your beginning to probe this this? police issue yeah it's a good question so so you know i was there for for some years four or five years before i wrote because i was writing working with available light you know while also doing Mm -hmm. having this sort of parallel career and you know one consequence of that was everybody knew me i was in everybody's lives obviously i stood out i was treated with incredible uh, you know um, hospitality and and friendship and and it uh, was a life-changing experience to learn so much about a community that we tend to see in one dimension. Um, the, um, uh, and I have to say, it, you know, initially there's, it was such an incredible environment just in terms of perception and what you took in that I did not initially see some of the, the police patterns I ultimately came to see, the, the way in which the community was policed. And it was a spectrum of things. You know, first, nobody if you know, nobody calls the police in a place like Stateway Gardens because they don't come, you know, in response to somebody broke into my apartment. You know, just it, so there's an under-policing. And then there's a police presence that is drawn by the drug trade um, that is, you know, by turns harassing and predatory. The open-air lobbies of each of the buildings was in a, a drug marketplace. 24-7, drugs are being sold. 
And the police, the term of art was the police would hit the building. You know, this would involve cars careening on the sidewalk, rushing up guys jumping out mm -hmm. before the young men in the drug trade could run upstairs into the building and disappear. Um, daily, I would see just routinely instances of excessive force in the interactions between police. And they, um, often, I would see just um, brazen shakedowns. Um, uh, so there's a mixture of excessive force and corruption. And it? corruption, you know, but also, I, you know, I think for me the thing that was most telling was, um, I mean, you know, the, the beatdowns were, you know, were obviously striking. Um, and I never saw some of the high-level corruption that I've since written about where there were actual protection rackets where police would uh, exact attacks from drug dealers in order to deal drugs in a, in a building and would protect them from law enforcement. But you, the residents used to joke about the open-air lobbies as being the policeman's ATM machine. You know, you, you want to make a quick withdrawal, just go and take drugs or money off a young man and say, you know, you just bailed yourself out. And so, but, the, but I want to make another point because the thing that was most striking to me was not so much the big stuff as the little daily stuff, you know, the ugliness of the language that was used. And sometimes, you know, the N-word and other, other language like that over the loudspeakers of, of police cars. Um, uh, the casual cruelty, just toying with people in perverse ways because, because you had the power to do it. And the, the openness and brazenness of that kind of that kind of behavior was was so routine and it was done with such a set you know i i now use the word impunity a lot it was part of my vocabulary then but not an active part of it and i feel like what happened in those years was i saw in the most visceral daily way what impunity looks like you know what people who are disposed to be abusive, you know, relatively small percentage of the police force, but didn't feel that way to people at Stateway Gardens. And um, when they can operate with impunity without fear of being identified and punished. So it was this... You say relatively small. Yeah. Uh, you've quantified that now, right? Yeah. So we have, um, by virtue of a, a lawsuit we, we won recently, we have a lot of data about um, sort of Police complaints of um, police abuse from citizens, and then you know what happens to them, and and it's it's really important to say, and I'm always at pains to say this, that based on the data we have, we have complete figures for the last four years. Ultimately, we're going to get the city has agreed to give us data going back to 1967. So these are the disciplinary profiles of every officer to serve, uh, but based on the the figures for the last four years, you know upwards of 80 percent of police officers get between zero and four complaints in the course of their career from citizens. 90% get less than 10. But then there's, you know, a, a number of officers, let's say it's under 5%, not an insignificant number in a police force of, of 12,000. Sure. And they're not evenly distributed throughout the city who get extraordinarily high numbers of complaints, get extraordinarily number of high... But both of these things are important, though, because yeah. the very community that uh, has experienced uh, these uh, instances of excessive force uh, are the communities that are also ravaged most by violence and crime and need 
right. uh, need effective policing. Right. And, and those two phenomena, which until recently we've treated as different spheres of discourse, you know, we talk about uh, gang violence and, you know, quote unquote gang violence in inner city neighborhoods and then intermittently until it just imploded recently, we talk about police abuse and police corruption, but we've treated those as, as separate things. They're the same conversation, the same phenomena. And that was part of what I was able to, what I was same exposed to. Same conversation in that. In that, um, the, um, the failure to hold abusive officers accountable um, drives whole communities away from not just the police, but from civil authority. And I witnessed at Stateway and, and wrote at length about... Meaning the community is not going to cooperate with the police. They're not going to cooperate with the police. They're not going to reach out to the police. Um, and, and, you know, we the in the press and public officials make much of an ethos, a cultural ethos of no snitch in, in yeah, these cones neighbors. of silence. Yeah. And I, On and, both sides. But, yeah, and I think there's some legitimacy to that, you know, uh, it, but overwhelmingly the more powerful um, phenomena in my experience is distrust of the police because that, you know, uh, small but significant number of officers who are abusive operate with impunity and they become the face of the police force in communities like this and they they disable and undermine conscientious officers who are the vast majority from being effective so i mean one instance of this is there was a uh team, hold, hold the thought because yeah. we, we have to take another break but i, I want to pursue this yeah. because i think the holistic view of this problem this notion that there has to be a bond between the community and police and that there are many, many, many police, the vast majority, trying to do the right thing and they're necessary. All that has to be discussed because uh, there, there, are, there are lives at stake and not just uh, in one way but in many ways. Absolutely. Let's talk specifically about the one case that has become so um, prominent in the news and has really... Uh, torn Chicago asunder, and that's the case of Laquan McDonald. He's a young man shot in October of 2014 here in Chicago by a police officer. Um, how did you become involved in that case? So my first involvement in the case was by way of a, a tip from somebody in government, a whistleblower in law enforcement close to the investigation, who reached out to a colleague, Craig Futterman, here at the law school, a lawyer I work with closely, and conveyed the information to us that, um, and it was about probably 10 days after the shooting in the fall of 2014, that um, it was the first time I'd heard the name Laquan McDonald and said that the f actual facts of the case were sharply at variance with what. Do you had been get reported. tips like that a lot? I mean, we get them some, you know, and because there are police officers who are disturbed about what they and know. Sometimes very senior people, you know, who reach out and say, "Look, you know, I'm trying to affect things on the inside. Somebody's got to be making noise about this on the outside." Mm -hmm. And so we have those those relationships and a number of instances over the years. I mean, I've had my kind of deep throat sources within the police department, sometimes quite literally like deep throat in the Watergate instance. Why, are they, why do you think they come forward? You know, I think it's, um, uh, I think 
they are uh, sometimes they have agendas, you know, but I think there are, in this case, I have no doubt that the individual was simply appalled by uh, what had happened. And as he conveyed to us, had no confidence that his own agency, you know, or the agencies he was, he, he was mm-hmm. part of the larger, you know, um, ecosystem in which they, they were, he had no confidence that they would vigorously investigate this case. And so he, he let us know that there was video and he provided enough um, leads and sh- shards of information that shreds of information that I was ultimately able to find an eyewitness to the shooting, a civilian eyewitness. So this sort of set me um, in motion as a journalist. But I, I do want to stress, I've gotten a lot of acknowledgement for this reporting, which is gratifying, although I would love... You just love won uh, the George Polk Award for I, this. I did, and and I, you know, and I, it's, as I say, very gratifying. I, um, at the same time, wish I'd never heard the name Laquan McDonald. This is not something I, I want on my resume, and it's, it's one of those paradoxes of the kind of work we do, that um, a story like this breaks Only and takes happens hold. because something horrible... Yeah, yeah. but but I, but the point I want to make is that you know while I'm being acknowledged for this, I wouldn't have pursued the story were it not for the whistleblower, um, and I, I may not have pursued it further were it not for a courageous c- civilian witness, mm-hmm. very frightened of police reprisal at that point when I showed up at his door, um, and you know we read these stories. I mean, until recently, with the heightened attention that's now been brought to this, you know, I you talk about being a police reporter. You know, you read these stories all the time. There are roughly forty police shootings a year in Chicago. Not all of them ending in fatalities, and mostly, you know, you read it, you feel uneasy, you turn the page. And in this instance, um, the intervention of the whistleblower sort of set in motion a, a train of events that I've played some role in. Um, I remember as well early in the process, probably within a week of getting the tip, going down and standing at the site of the shooting, the address for those who know Chicago, 41st and Pulaski, um, southwest side, really an incredible environment in the sense that it's sort of the city of the big shoulders. You know, this is where there are big truck yards and Mm -hmm. industry. Um, in the distance, you can see the skyline. So it sort of feels like the center of the of the city, and at the same time, like the most desolate place on earth. And at night, nine thirty at night, when this incident began, um, you know, it's it's um, completely deserted except for the heavy traffic on Pulaski, the sort of major north-south artery. The basic story is, or that I should start with the story that was told by the police department. Um, and the official, I mean, this was the official story of the police department. There's a press release that was released several hours after the incident that basically said, um, you, you know, young man with a knife lunges at police officer. And although they didn't use this word, the burden of it was and causes his own death. You know, um, the police officer has no choice but to shoot him. Shoots him in the chest. He dies sometime late. Dies sometime later at a nearby hospital. So every it, this time, it wasn't clear how how many times he had been shot. No, and so, but it was so carefully phrased. I mean, this was an exercise in in Orwellian sort of language um, to convey an impression that all the agency was with the young man, and the police were just doing what they had to do. Um, I 
So my witness gave a very different account. He had been driving on Pulaski, stopped by the action, um, and had an unimpeded view of what we have now all seen, or many people have seen in, in the video that was ultimately released. And he described an incident, a, you know, a situation where the police had complete control of the situation. They've corralled the young man. He's in no way aggressive. He's shying away from the police officers, um, but they have they have significant force and presence, and they have him contained. Nobody else is threatened. And a police officer gets out of his car within seconds as the boy is moving away from him, shoots him. He wasn't sure how many times initially. The boy falls to the ground, is completely immobilized, kind of in fetal position, writhing in pain on the ground, and then shoots him a total of 16 times, you know, essentially empties his clip. And... Um, he he didn't have the number sixteen, but, but he said, but, but multi, a barrage, a barrage, and it's you know he's witnessed this appalling, appalling thing. Then you got a hold uh, 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 sometime after that of the coroner's report. Well, the autopsy. So um, having talked to him, uh, it, you know the the next sort of critical piece of information was the autopsy report, and the autopsy had been performed the the morning. Um, following the shooting at 8.30 in the morning. He was declared dead at 10.45 or something. 8.30 in the morning, there's an autopsy, and the autopsy is conducted with an investigator from the agency that mm-hmm. investigates these incidents, these incidents in the room. I, um, I actually reached out to um, sources within the Cook County government, mm-hmm. and which um, oversees the medical, Cor- medical examiner's mm-hmm. office, and they were able, before the report itself was um, available to be FOIA'd, they were able to get the information that he had been shot 16 times, uh, 16 independent gunshot wounds. And Which kind of obviates the notion back. that he caused his own death. Well, and also, I mean, there was just no way... There was absolutely no way to square the autopsy, which was definitive. Now there is, you know, mm-hmm. a body of factual information. There was no way to square it with the city's account, and so, you know, on the basis of the autopsy and the the witness, um, I published an article in Slate uh, Slate magazine, um, you know, detailing, you know, what I'd learned at this point. The state's attorney was investigating. Was the federal government in? Was the Justice yeah, Department the feds, in? Yeah, well? the, the feds were in as well. I, you know, I, before I your story was published. Before my story was published. Before, but, but I ask you that because, um, you know, you hear this a lot that there was a concern that this would be covered up. But once the U.S. Justice Department is in, isn't it highly unlikely that that story would would be able to be covered up? You know, it's hard to know because we we still haven't heard from the Justice Department in this. They work slowly. They work slowly. Um, and I think one of the things that, I you know, I, I tend to agree with you that cover-up is the wrong way to characterize what happened here. Yeah. And I think it, in a way— Although uh, that's the prevailing— That's the prevailing narrative. Yeah. The, the hostility towards the mayor and his administration is extraordinary. And the prevailing narrative is of cover-up and conspiracy, basically. Well, and a lot of it is based on the fact that this video was not released until a court ordered it released a year later. Yeah, and my but my position on this is that I wish it was a cover-up. I wish it was a conspiracy. I mean, I think that's a... Given what we're really contending with, that's a kind of sentimental narrative. I, but it'd be a lot easier to fix than what we're looking at. This was... 
I don't want to suggest I don't want to suggest that the execution of a child on the streets of Chicago is the norm. It was an exceptional event. What happened? Well, sadly, the execution but, of a child on the streets of Chicago may be the norm, but it's not. Oh, it's not generally at the hands of police. It, well, that. But it's also not. It, you know, in terms of the police, it's not the norm. Right. But it, it happens, and it happens too much. But everything that happened. After that, while the boy is starting, while he's bleeding out on the ground, is the norm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the circling of the wagons and the intervention at every level of government and to the highest levels to contain this. um, uh, From the first moment, I mean, in the first moments, officers are shooing away witnesses to the shooting, you know, without taking statements or getting contact information. They are destroying evidence. Um, there's an effort to intimidate witnesses who have said strong things about what they saw. They take two witnesses, three witnesses, one of whom I've talked to, taken down to a nearby police station and subjected to a kind of badgering it's not even right to call it interrogation because they weren't trying to find something out. They're trying to line them up with the police account. They're trying account. to line them up with the police mm-hmm. account. And they said, and I have this quoted from one of my sources, they said to these, and this is to one of the witnesses, you can't have seen what you say you saw. We have video that contradicts it. So within hours of the shooting, they're invoking the video to try to kind of re-educate these, these right. witnesses. Um, there is the immediate falsification of, as we all know, because of the... This is an interesting thing, though, because you hear people say, these videos should not be released too quickly because then witnesses can adjust their story to the video. You're saying the opposite is true, that without the release of the video, witnesses are coerced into uh, embracing a an official account. It didn't work in this instance, but that was the effort. And I, but I also think that. Do you think there's anything to that? That if you release a video, no, that you make the investigation more difficult. I think you know. I think what's emerging nationally as, I mean, it's in the process of emerging, so it hasn't fully crystallized. But what's emerging as a sort of um, policy on this is that videos should be released in a in a timely fashion, and that's a matter of days, not weeks or months, unless there's an exceptional investigative reason not to. There was an instance in Cincinnati of um, an officer shot, uh, a campus police officer shot a motorist, and the policy in Cincinnati is to release video within 24 or 48 hours. They took a week or 10 days, the reason being that they wanted to check out and possibly impeach the stories of other officers, mm-hmm. you know, in the kind of classic code of silence thing. Um, so I, I think there's much more to be gained, especially in this climate of distrust that we that we live in now for early, timely release of this kind of the information. The mayor's panel he had a review, they just suggested, what, three months? Is that Three months, which makes no sense to me, and I don't understand the process by which that emerged. Mm-hmm. I think it was a serious Three months for mistake. the release of a video is what they recommend. Yeah. So the, pattern, the, the, the policy of the city is not to release them until after a case has been brought. That was, so or think, not brought. I think that's the point we want to go back to, is that the... the um, whether we're talking the U.S. attorney, the state's attorney, the, you know, the city itself, I think part of what this has illustrated, you know, part of what the Laquan McDonald case has illustrated is a, 
and it was in fact policy, but I think it also is sort of cover-up. It's investigation as cover-up. As long as you can say you have an open pending investigation, you can withhold public information from the public. And, and I know cases- And you had numbers of, uh, that, of the number of complaints that have been brought and the number of uh, disciplinary action been taken, and the number is minuscule. Infinitesimal. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the number of cases that end with a, you know, a sustained finding and any kind of meaningful punishment are are minute. And so people have, you know, great skepticism about, um, you know, why would I complain when this is Do you think system? that a case would have been brought, do you, this, this police yeah. officer has now been charged with first degree murder, charged on the day that the video was released by court order in your case. Uh, a year later, do you think that the indictment would have been brought uh, if not for the release of this tape? Um, you know, it's hard to know. I, I th- probably not. Probably not. The um, uh, and you know, this has been such a complicated, in many ways, sordid process. It's important to note, though, that there have been some important benchmarks in this. The murder charge brought against Jason Van Dyke, the shooter, is the first time, is the, you know, it's the first time in 50 years that a police officer has been criminally charged for a homicide. It's the first time um, in history, so far as we know, that a police officer has been charged in a, uh, a shooting case. And that's significant, you know, even though we got there in this in this bizarre um, and, and disturbing process. The U.S. attorney... Um, According to an FBI source, you know the expectation was that he was going to indict Van Dyke you know, before everything blew up, well, indict Van Dyke on civil rights civil rights violations. Now it seems to me that the political context is such that I'll be very surprised if the U.S. attorney doesn't also indict other officers for participating there, right? in the the kind of mm-hmm. um, code of silence stuff. And I, I should say one thing about that because. You know, we talk glibly about the code of silence. I'm doing a big investigative piece right now on the consequences for a couple of whistleblowers within the department. So it's it's real, it's significant, it's a major, you know, thing that has to be addressed going forward. But some sympathy has to be extended to officers living under this sort of regime of fearing one another and fearing reprisal. Think about the other officers at the scene. Van Dyke was the only shooter. There were eight or nine other officers there. The two officers, the initial responders, responded in exemplary fashion. You know, they they found the boy several blocks away from where he was ultimately shot. They um, asked him to drop the knife. He didn't, but he wasn't aggressive. Nobody else is around. He's kind of disassociated. They don't know quite what, what's going on with him. They ended up following him for several blocks, just walking with him. One of the officers walking alongside. I have surveillance video that shows this from... Mm-hmm the Greater Chicago Food Depository that was on the so road. So they did the right thing. They did the right thing. So then everybody come, you know, everybody comes to 41st and Pulaski. Van Dyke gets out of his car within seconds, you know, this incredible execution. I have no trouble assuming of those officers, you know, the other officers there, that they responded humanly as any of us would to what they saw and to, Paul, and to million, the way millions of people have responded to the video. They go back to the station house, and I'm imagining this, but we know the outcome, and I imagine, you know, their sergeant or lieutenant gives them a statement that they're going to sign. You know, this is the story we're going to tell about what happened. That's not a question of interpretation or perspective. These are outright lies, as we've now seen in the statements. 
Um, I cannot imagine worse working conditions than that. You know, well, it's also, it, I mean, to put a different spin on it, these these guys go out there and gals. Yeah. They're in, often in dangerous situations. They've got families. They've got concerns. And they there's a certain reliance on each other. So if you break the chain, you're breaking that that sort of sense of we're linked together. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. I think it's part of the challenge in changing it because I think like a lot of malign things in life, it sort of arises out of admirable sentiments. So that kind of loyalty, you've got my back, I've got yours, at some point metastasizes into something yeah. just terrible. Well, and we see in the, we see, I mean, a casebook example is the Laquan McDonald case, but there are many, many other cases. And, um, you know, I think part of the challenge of reform right now and leadership is creating the conditions in which good police officers can help weed out bad officers who well make, and in fact they pay the price for them one thing that's happened since january is there's been this uh, incredible inflation of 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 shootings and homicides in yeah. chicago do you think that the police are reacting to this case are they are they uh, feeling like they should hang back a little here so a, a police I, I as i mentioned a moment ago i'm doing a, a long actually a series of articles based on a couple of sources who are whistleblowers within the department. And one of them said to me the other day, and really stayed with me, and I, I, the words have stayed with me, she said, we live in a broken city. We live in a broken city. And what she was referring to is um, you know, there are whole neighborhoods and broad populations in the city who are alienated from the police and don't want to interact with the police and don't cooperate with the police. To the point where we and, saw a young nine-year-old kid assassinated by a gang because of something his father did and no one wanted to come forward and finger the shooter. And we have to assume that lots of people had relevant information. Right. At the same time, we now have a police department. And remember, you know, in a matter of months, police officers have gone through a kind of Copernican revolution in their world where um, what they thought they understood about the job and the culture and the de facto job description as well as the literal job description has now changed drastically. Um, and so they're really, you know, bewildered and are, are in fact, uh, there are all sorts of symptoms of, of that. There are... Uh, there's been a significant spike, I'm told, in um, police officers taking earlier than usual retirement. So they're you know fully vested in their pensions at 20 years and usually stay on beyond that. Right. But now people are taking good police officers, good frontline police officers, the kind of men and women you want in your community, asking to be put behind desks. Um, uh, everybody now reports that um, police officers are trying, you know, this is your reference to holding back. Nobody wants to be first on a call, mm -hmm. you know, to be put out there to be the next video that goes viral. Um, so, you know, a broken city where the police don't want to interact with the community. The community doesn't want to interact with the police. So, and there are a lot of bodies falling in between them. So give us some hope here. Uh, and, and, and let's yeah. point out that every there are many, many communities that are going through this. Yeah. And this isn't a new story in Chicago. I worked for the Hyde Park Herald. I was a journalist once, too. And my first uh, assignment was as a columnist for a newspaper in Hyde Park, where you are yeah. from. And uh, it was a, in 1973, and it was about 
the mayor, then Richard J. Daley, Congressman Ralph Metcalf, the leader of the oh, yeah. black yeah. political leader of the South Side, and their fight over police excessive force and police brutality. That yeah. was 43 years ago. Yeah. Uh, 42, I guess. But, I mean, this is a... So, so now we're at this inflection point. Yeah. And it can either go very, very badly, which is the direction it, it feels like it's yeah. heading, or something good can happen. What is the good that can happen here? So, so two, two things. I mean, one is, and I think this has been a, a motif through our conversation, but it's worth saying explicitly, that what we're dealing with now and what we're confronting and what we're contending with are forms of structural violence that are built into American society. This is the society we've created. You know, the press all of it, myself included, you know, tends to um, describe things within a frame of crisis. Things are crisis. Well, a crisis is a departure from the norm. And, and that's this is like, the norm. This is the norm. And that's what we're reckoning with and what we're trying to confront. That's why the narrative of cover-up, and it, it just doesn't capture what we're really dealing with here. There's, you know, in this extended post-Ferguson moment we're living through this period, there's been uh, no increase in police violence nationally. In fact, police shootings are down in Chicago. So what's happened, and this is your inflection point, this is the extraordinary nature of this moment, is it's as if a curtain has been drawn back, as it has at other junctures in, yeah. in American history, and we're actually comprehending the um, these things that are baked into the society, into the ongoing life of the society. That's the challenge. And so what's... I know the challenge. I'm, but what's exciting... I, I want to leave people on a positive yeah, no, note. And I want them to have some hope. Oh, there is, you know, I work on this stuff all the time with a great sense of, of possibility. I never expected to see an opening like this that has, has occurred. I think it is... So you think this generations-long systemic problem can actually be confronted now? I, you know, I hope, I mean, I think the challenge is you go back to Ralph Metcalf, you know, 40 odd years ago, I was in New York for an event a few weeks ago and uh, met Jack Rosenthal, who was editorial director of, uh, editorial page editor of the New York Times, and early in his career, young lawyer, young journalist, wrote the Kerner Report. Mm -hmm. Read the Kerner uh, Report. About a police riot at the 19... Well, you know, and about the about the aftermath of the King. Oh, that, that's right. right. They, that was the that was yeah. the urban violence right. uh, and report. Yeah, it, it is completely current in, mm -hmm. in what it describes. So these have been intractable issues in American life that we are now, you know, beginning to engage. I think this is both the good news and the bad news. I think the good news is. Um, we know what to do. You know, we've long known what to do. That addressing these patterns and these problems and these intolerable conditions for, for some of our fellow citizens is not going to be a matter of some great innovation, some great new idea, some technological fix. I mean, we know much of what needs to be done. And I think that is the, 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 the heart of the matter in terms of... Um, this kind of blood knot at the center of American life around race. We know and we don't know at the same time. You know, we're capable of knowing these things and not knowing them at the same time. And so the great challenge for all of us right now, and I say all of us because that image of a broken city, we all live in a broken mm -hmm. city. We mm -hmm. all own part of this. Mm -hmm. And and I'm encouraged as I go around, I, you know, because of my um, relation to these issues, I've speak four or five times a week in different in different settings from church basements to you know downtown civic mm -hmm. groups 
everywhere I go, people are trying to figure out how to think about this and, and in a personal way, what's my responsibility and what's my relationship to it. So it's going to take that kind of engagement from people across the spectrum in, in Chicago and the country, and it's going to take it over time. But there are lots and lots of concrete interventions. I think the the challenging thing in building a process and building public understanding of that process is this feels like, and I think it may well prove to be a transformative moment, but there are no transformative remedies. You mm-hmm. know, there's nothing that in itself is going to be well, sufficient. Well, one thing that I know is that um, whatever the remedy is, it has to be done in concert with the community and the police. And if there yeah, if there isn't a linking of arms here, um, it's gonna. It, it chances are we're gonna run into the same problems or other problems uh, down the line. Either a problem of a pa- passive policing, right. uh, which will lead to a bloodletting of a different kind, or problems of continued excessive force and systemic uh, 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 efforts to cover that up. So we need to do it together. Unfortunately, we need to also um, take this up in the next chapter of our discussion, which I'm sure we will be having over time. But Jamie Calvin, I got to tell you, as an old reporter, I admire the work that you've done. And as a citizen of Chicago, I appreciate the work that you've done to shine a light on what is a really troubling, troubling issue. Well, thank you. And I hope we'll do this again in the future and have, well, good, have better things, better to, things report. to report on. Hope so. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.